welcome to the Auditorium Podcast, a portal into the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to the Auditorium Podcast, uh, with me, your presenter, Dr. David Bramwell, and my co-pilot... Shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. What? Quiet, please, shh, just for a moment. Wait, what? Uh, Dave, uh, wait. I'm just listening. I'm just listening to them. Listening to what? It's, there's it's nothing, nothing to listen to. to. Shh. What's it's nearly finished. It's nearly finished. There's nothing on iTunes. I can't Shush. hear anything. Shush. Ten seconds. Big finish. There's nothing there. Ah, it's brilliant. I, that I, is I, brilliant. What? There, there was nothing. Nothing was playing, Dave. There was silence. There was something playing. What? It was silence. What? It was four minutes and 33 seconds. Oh, the John Cage track. I thought I recognised it. Yeah. I thought I'd heard that before. You see, if you'd stop talking. Yeah, well, well, I was conscious of the fact that people are listening. Um, so what are you listening to that for? I'm getting into minimalism in a big way. I'm, oh. I'm sick of modern pop. I'm thinking, you know, where did pop go wrong? Where did it go right? Well, it went right in the 70s, didn't it? With, mm. with the, the Autobahn, you know, the the, the um, craft work and Einstein and the Neubutten and, and that German movement, you know, David Bowie in Berlin with Lowe, with uh, Eno and Fripp and all those guys. You know, and I, I want to bring that back in some way. I want, I want there to be a new ism in music. So, that, so it means something. It's got a philosophical meaning to it. What was that? No, really, what was that? Well, we've, got a, we've got a new doorbell in the studio. Andrew Andrew wanted to install one, which is great because it means that if you know if we phone for pizza during a, a programme... We, Never uh, mind we pizza, that's it! What do you mean that's it? That, that is the new movement. That has got everything in those two notes played like that that we need for a new musical movement. Are you, are you talking dingamalism? Whoa! Yeah, it just came to me. It just came to me, and we would. It wasn't written down in front of me, and and Dave. we we could form a new band. Let's 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 get rid of Dave Squared because it was never working. Forget it. You uh, know. The Dingamalists. The Dingamalists. Dingamalists. And how can we about... be Das Dingamalists? Das Das. Have a little, little tip yeah, of the hat. I like that you know? little nod to the. Yeah. And I, I think we should dress only in pink. Yeah. Uh, refuse to answer questions, mm. or, or or maybe just answer them with other questions. That's very good. Yeah. That's very good. Or um, is it? See what I did there? Yes, exactly. Um, so, and and obviously, we're, all right, if we're playing with Ding and Dong in this yep. music, this new form of, of dingamalism, then yep. our names, well, I'm going to be Dave Ding. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, hang on a minute. What? No, I'm not going to go around as Dave Dong. No, it's cool. It's a good name. It makes no, you sound come like on. a porn Look, star. Front of the enemy, kind of... Dave Ding, refuses to answer questions only with other questions. Dave Dong, appearing later in Noel's house party or some such it's nonsense. It's a good name. It's a good name. It's just, they, you know, they're, they're, um, they work together, don't they? They're, they're, well, yeah, they do, they but Dong's definitely the kind of, you know... Yeah, well, you know, you're, 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 you know... You're, the lower half of the deal. No, 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 it's the, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the offbeat, isn't it? It's the, it's the, uh, you're, you're the, you're the edge to it. The ding, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm all about the ding. I'm all about on the beat, Dave. It's, it's, no, it's what, no, it's that's the where you're wrong. That's where you're wrong. I like the ding, but this should be about the dong. Even though it's called dingamalism, actually, what creates the groove? Is the dong? That's it's the crossbeat. So this is this is good. This is good. You see, you're getting into your role. So, so you are you are I'm Dave, Dave Dong. Dong. You're, you're you're embodying. So Dave we're dualists. We're fundamentally absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's and and the, I mean the problem is the problem is ding dong. Uh, no, it's uh, it, it's it's very uh, well, it's very doorbell, isn't it? I mean, what if what if 
What if it well, needs? Well, there's nothing wrong with well, that. It, well, it needs a it needs a rival movement. Everyone's got a doorbell. It's completely democratic. We need, uh, but we do. We need. We, we yeah, need a rival we need, movement. We need a kind of Britpop thing, don't we? Yeah, yeah you're we right. Do, we do. What, what could the other movement be called? Hang on a minute. I think we've got. I think we've got a solution to this. What today's speaker? No, get no, out. No, seriously, Dave. get out. Today's speaker, Matthew Clayton, right, yeah. is giving a talk about Kling Clang. Okay, which was a, a a musical movement, a little known musical movement from the 20th century, right, based around the cowbell. And he argues that the cowbell, more than any other instrument in the 20th century, even the synth, defined the uh, the you know the modern modern music. Nice cowbell versus doorbell, bring it. Absolutely, here he is, Matthew Clayton with Ding Dong versus. Cling clang. I'm six years old. Um, I'm in Switzerland. I'm, I'm abroad for the first time. And uh, I'm looking down on the valley. On the, I'm on the balcony of the room we were staying in. And I'm in love with Switzerland. I'm absolutely adoring Switzerland. I'm adoring everything about it. I think mainly when I look back, it's because it was a culture that essentially had chocolate right at its uh, centre. Uh, and as, six years, as a six-year-old, that's kind of what you're interested in. So earlier that day, I'd been into the local village, which is was a place called Sasfe, uh, the Pearl of the Alps. And it's an interesting place in that there's no cars in there. There have never been any cars in Sasfe. And I was standing outside the local church, and uh, my dad was in the supermarket, and I was standing outside the church, and this very groovy-looking German guy came up to me. And I was looking up at the church, and he said, uh, he said, you're a bell ringer, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am a bell ringer. How did you know that? He goes, uh, well, I was a teenage bell ringer. My name's Wolfgang. I'm a musician from Dusseldorf. And uh, I was like, oh, well, it's really nice to meet you. So I was a kind of bell ringer, I guess, before I was a teenager. At that point, uh, my dad comes out of the supermarket, and, um, and Wolfgang disappears. And my dad had been in the supermarket. He'd been buying food for me and my five brothers and sisters because that day we were going to enjoy the Alphersburg. And the Alphersburg is the annual festival that happens in the Alps where they take the cows up to the, uh, their summer pastures. So they winter lower down and they go and um, they're, all, they're all driven up. And, it's a, and it's, a, it's a kind of extraordinary day. All the cows have their best cowbells on them. Um, there's outpourings, there's yodeling. Uh, the whole village walks up there. So we'd walked up the hill. And all around the, the chalet we were staying in, were, well, there, was cow, there were cows everywhere and they were just wandering freely and there were cowbells everywhere. It was a kind of permanent sound on the holiday. The, the outpourings are really interesting because they're designed to be played outside. They're designed to resonate ac across the valley, they, uh, to echo across the valley, using the valley as a kind of massive echo chamber. I don't think it's any um, coincidence that Lee Scratch Perry ended up in Switzerland because uh, Switzerland is basically one massive uh, space echo. Anyway, so I'm up there. I'm at the Alphersburg, and uh, I'm standing with my dad, and I'm listening to the cowbells. I'm listening to the yodeling. And uh, suddenly Wolfgang from Dusseldorf appears again. And he says to my dad, he says, uh, he says your son, uh, he likes the bells. He likes the bells. And my dad said, yeah, well, you know, everyone likes the bells, don't they? He goes, ah, oh, my name's Wolfgang from Dusseldorf. It's not as simple as that, Ian. And, uh, and then Wolfgang says, he says, he says, in Germany, we call uh, the noise of the bells kling-klang. Do you have... Uh, the equivalent, uh, do you have the equivalent in, in England? And my dad says, uh, he thinks for a second, he goes, yeah, we've got ding dong. Ding dong, same thing, sound of the bells. Onomatopoeic noise of the bells. And uh, a cloud passes over Wolfgang's face. He looks, he looks upset, angry, and hurt all at the same time. And he says to my dad, he says, no, 
is knowing. Kling clang is not ding dong. Kling clang is the opposite of ding dong. <laughs> Kling clang is the noise of the cowbell. It's the noise of nature. It's the noise of birdsong. It's the noise of randomness. It's the noise of possibility. It's the noise of beauty and chaos. Ding dong is the bell used to control. It's the bell to tell you when to go to work, when to eat, when to pray, when to mourn for your dead. I'm sorry, Ian, but no, they're very different things. Ding dong is, a, is a bad bells. <laughs> and my dad's looking like totally bemused and says, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think you can have such a thing as bad bells. And, and Wolfgang says, well, in my country, you can have bad bells. In the Second World War, there was a secret weapon called the cloche, which was a giant bell that was designed to kill people. Bells can be bad. They can be bad just like people. Uh, and at that point, my dad ushered me away. <laughs> maybe rightly, maybe wrongly. But that conversation has haunted me ever since, and I've wondered what... Can you really divide the universe into cling-clang and ding-dong? Uh, ding Is uh, ding-dong all bad? Is cling-clang all right? Is cling-clang maybe something, a way of looking at the world, something that existed before bells existed? Is it really a kind of manifestation, an iteration of the energy that holds us together? Is ding-dong humanity's attempt to separate ourselves from nature, to see ourselves as different, to see ourselves as, as not part of it. And that kind of, uh, that, that conversation I've been having in my head for the last uh, 48, for 42 years. So in order to understand it, in order to give you kind of better understanding of it, or we need to know a little bit about the history of bells and, uh, and humanity. We don't really know when bells, uh, people invented bells when humans started using bells. We know that originally they were very small bells and they were thousands of years old. So um, on, in Sparta, there's a, a, a temple to Athena, the House of Bronze. And it's called the House of Bronze because uh, 200 bells were discovered. Terracotta and bronze. Like bronze is the classic metal for, for bells. But earlier than that, bells were made out of clay and out of wood. Um, and no one really knows what the bells were used for at Sparta, but they think they were used to protect the, to protect the temple, to, to cloak the temple in the great power of Kling Klang. What we have here is, is a kind of slightly grainy photo of um, the Marquis Yi. So the Marquis Yi is, uh, with these bells here, they were discovered in, in the 70s, but they were from 463 BC. And they were in, uh, in China. And they're the first real evidence, kind of amazing really, of bells being used for purely or, or, or mainly a musical purpose. They don't have any uh, clappers in them, any clangers, or any bell ends, whatever you want to call the bit inside. So they're purely, they're very much a female bell. They're very much a female bell. Uh, they, they, haven't been, um, they haven't been tainted by the male presence that you often find in bells. Uh, and they're a two-tone bell. So you bang them on the outside in two different places, they make two different sounds. There are 64 of them in this set. Uh, and in the chamber, the chamber was about the size of this downstairs area here. Uh, and there were three horses buried there and there were 21 women uh, buried there next to this, this um, kind of awful person, I guess. So we know that, we don't quite know what, human, what, what, what they meant um, in Sparta or here, really. Were they just musical instruments? But we know from their earliest days that bells have been associated with the supernatural, with 
communicating with the gods, communicating with the dead, um, bringing good luck and protecting areas. Um, for some reason, we've always kind of done that with bells. So, so that's, that's kind of very general background on, on the early history of bells. And I want to explain a little bit about how Ding Dong has developed over the years, how this nefarious power has happened. Bishop Nola of Campania. So that's Bishop Nola. He's in the 5th century. He's the person that introduced bells into Christianity. Um, he brought them into a church. He was uh, Italian, uh, and that's why bell ringing is sometimes known as campanology. Um, and he grew up, though, he grew up in the Italian Alps near the Swiss border. And people think that actually the reason why he introduced bells into the church was homesickness. He felt he, felt he missed home. And this was a way of bringing him back to home by having uh, uh, the sound of the cowbells around him. So from there, it really it, it grows in popularity and it spreads, spreads around the Western world. All churches end up having bells in them. But then a couple of weird things happen. There are a couple of weird introductions to this surge in power of, uh, of Ding Dong. So uh, bells got taken out of churches in the Reformation. Lots of them got destroyed. But weirdly, that had a counter effect. You thought that would help the cause of Kling Klang. Uh, you thought it would be a blow to Ding Dong. But actually, what happens is the bells are taken out. But when they're put back in, they've had a reboot. They kind of, they've gone to bells 2.0. They've introduced a full wheel, and they've introduced a couple of other technological uh, improvements that mean that you can have far greater control over the timing of the bell ringing. So that kind of happens. And then also, a little bit later, uh, so this is Notre Dame quite recently, the bell's being brought back into Notre Dame. Notre Dame is obviously the place where the kind of world's most famous bell ringer, the uh, Quasimodo, lived. Um, and the bells are being put back there because the bells were taken out in the 1790s, the French Revolution. When the French Revolution happened, they tried to um, secularize French society and rid it of Christianity. And one of the ways they tried to do that was to uh, get rid of the bells. So about 100,000 bells were removed uh, during the French Revolution and turned into cannons and turned into coins. However, the weird thing about Kling Klang and Ding Dong, it's a bit of a yin-yang situation. There's not really, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously very much in favor of Kling Klang. I'm very much anti-Ding Dong. But the two of them really kind of coexist together, and there's an eternal battle between the two of them for supremacy. And maybe they kind of exist together with a, and you can never really see one of them uh, surviving. So uh, the world's tallest church has been eroded by men's urine. Sadly, the church tower is now gone. It actually has been completely eroded by men's urine. Um, <laughs> Which is, which is very sad, but also is kind of indicative of a, of a weird thing that happened with bell ringing, so, uh, with bells. So you've got this thing where uh, politics intervenes, where religion intervenes, but also kind of humanity intervenes to challenge the power of Ding Dong. And the way humanity intervenes in, in, in this particular instance, and there are a couple of other examples I'll go into later of the other ways that it does it, is through a bad behavior. So bell ringers develop their own culture, and the bell ringing culture um, is totally separate from the church. They have their own, uh, they have a separate entrance to the church. They won't attend the service. Often there'll be a different religion. They start drinking in the bell tower. They start fornicating in the bell tower. Uh, there's, an, there's, there's an instance in 1832 in Linfield, not far from here, where the bell ringers urinate on the head of the vicar. Uh, and it causes quite a stink. Um, 
But there's a weird thing happens in today. Like, so my aunt's a bell ringer in Ditchling, and she doesn't attend the service. She has a separate entrance. They all go in there, they ring the bells, and they leave afterwards. And also, the other weird thing that you see against, you see of bell ringers uh, kind of anti-ding dong, is they start change ringing. Like, change ringing is totally weird. You're not ringing a melody. You're ringing, ringing a mathematical sequence that doesn't repeat itself. And the longer that sequence goes on, the more highly accomplished a bell ringer you are. It's really abstract, weird art. Um, you also have, around about this time, you have this kind of bizarre thing where, where bells start getting bigger. So again, this is Ding Dong, very much in ascendance. So bells start getting bigger, and this is an instance of it, which is, that's 200 tons, uh, cast in 1716. It's the Tsar Bell in Moscow. Um, really just a, 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 someone trying to show off their power that they can cast a big bell. It never gets rung. I think in some ways, Kling Klang doesn't want it to be rang. So after it's cast, it's being held up by a wooden structure. The wooden structure catches fire, and people throw water on the bell, and the bell cracks. Uh, and it's never been, that's where it's been ever since. There was, you might remember at the late 90s, Adamski was discovered living in the bell after he <laughs> absconded on, a, went AWOL on a Russian tour. Um, you might, some people might remember that, which is kind of extraordinary. Um, so thinking about that kind of good and evil, ding dong, cling clang, this is the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, um, currently being turned into luxury flats, uh, which is a shame because it was established in 1520, but whatever. Um, it was the place where the Liberty Bell was cast. So the Liberty Bell that became a symbol of the anti-slavery movement in America, also a bell, with famously uh, a famously cracked bell. But in America, you also have this weird thing where... Um, uh, they didn't adopt bells uh, in churches in the same way that Europe did, but they really adopted bells in factories. So lots of, factory use, lots of factories used them, and people, um, and they were used to control people's lives. So there's, I've got a quote somewhere in my pocket. It's from, eight, it's from 1844. It's from, from a Massachusetts literary magazine, and someone's saying, up, up, up before day at the clang of the bell, out of the mill at the clang of the bell. Everything in obedience to that ding dong, as though we were living machines, and that's you know that's an awful indictment of uh, of of the sadness of ding dong, really. I think. But watching the clock, um, sadly, that industry starts in Switzerland. Um, maybe inevitably, it starts in Switzerland, but essentially, it's a way of taking the factory bell and putting the factory bell in your in your pocket on your wall. Um, absolutely everywhere, and it starts taking over. Time starts taking over. Now, the kind of fundamental principles, I think, of understanding Kling Klang is that the time here, for me, on this stage is, is very different to the, the time of the guy at the back on his iPhone. Um, he's absolutely in a different space to me. And he's existing on a different time. He's probably a couple of seconds behind me. Uh, and the time everywhere is, t is totally different. But for reasons, really, of, uh, of industry and capitalism, we start standardizing time. And this is one of the great, I think, the great kind of whitewashes of, of Ding Dong, is that they managed to persuade everyone that the time in London is the same as the time in Edinburgh, when it, when it kind of patently isn't. Um, the railways are the real force that drives the standardization of time. And it happens in the mid-19th century, 
happens a little bit earlier in Britain than it does in America. There are a couple of people, places that hold out. Amsterdam, lover of liberty. Amsterdam holds out until the Second World War. Up until the Second World War, Amsterdam's on Amsterdam time. Uh, it doesn't even know what that is. Um, however, moments of joy. The cuckoo clock. The cuckoo clock, a kind of classic satirical upending of Ding Dong by the powers of Kling Klang. Again, no one knows who invented it. It came out of Switzerland. It's now mainly made in the, the Black Forest Ghetto area of Germany. Um, so, and this is the classic design. It's got the pine kernel weights. Uh, sorry about that joke. Um, there's, there's the cuckoo. The cuckoo pops out there. And, uh, and no one knows who invented it. And I love that. I love the idea that someone suddenly decided that it would be a good idea to add a two-note a mechanical bird to a clock. That's the sort of thing that keeps me going, really, in days like this. <laughs> There's the nonsense of time, uh, time and distance. That's kind of what they were, people were thinking about when they standardised time. All right, enough ding-dong. Relax. We're going to talk a bit of cling-clang for a while. So, cling-clang. How does cling-clang manifest itself? How does it kind of come into the kind of human era? How does it uh, show itself... Um, how does it become musical? Because I'm going to be talking about cowbells quite soon. We're going to go back to cowbells, which is my great love. As the kind of, you know, they are, I don't know, they're the kind of Jesus Christ figure of, uh, they're central to the religion of Kling Klang, really. So 1688, uh, a medical student from Switzerland called Johann Hoffer, um, he, uh, he creates or he invents the word nostalgia. So nostalgia didn't used to be uh, was originally didn't mean looking back. It meant being feeling homesick. And he uh, described nostalgia as an actual illness. It was a, it was a physical illness that had, people had when they went away from home, specifically the Swiss, and specifically Swiss that lived in mountain regions where they could hear cowbells. The higher up the mountain, he believed, the more likely it was you were to suffer from nostalgia. Um, and when I went up that first day to the Alphersburg uh, at Sassfei and listened to the Alpons, they were playing a, a tune called the Ranz de Vash, which is the, is the milking song. Uh, and the milking song, I'm not going to play it to you now because it is an extraordinarily powerful piece of music and you will all leave here tonight feeling uh, uh, probably heartbroken and, uh, and very upset. Um, but the Ranz de Vash is it's the, it's the Swiss milking song, uh, and it was, the first, it was the first popular song ever to be banned. It was banned by Napoleon. Um, and Napoleon, he banned Ranz de Vash because at that time there were lots of Swiss mercenaries uh, fighting around Europe with soldiers. And, they were, and nostalgia has established itself as a, an actual medical condition. And they were complaining about that. Uh, and they were saying they needed to go home. They needed to get back because they, they were suffering from nostalgia. Um, and uh, Napoleon thought that the, this particular tune, the Ranstevac, was the thing that was really kicking it off, that was the, the catalyst to, 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 to the illness. So he banned it. But actually, um, it's clear that Napoleon suffered from nostalgia himself. He was obsessed by the sound of bells. If anyone was... When he would walk past a... a uh, a church, he would insist that people would stop if the bells were ringing so they could listen to them. So making a leap from that valley and the Ranz de Vash, how does then cowbells, how do bell ringing get back into music? And they get back in with these uh, seven people from uh, Lancashire. P.T. Barnum's on holiday in the 1840s, the great circus impresario. 
and he comes across this group of uh, Lancastrian bell ringers. And he says, I'm going to make you stars. I'm going to make you famous. Come to America with me. I'll put you on tour. And they say, uh, yeah, we'd love to. And he says, well, there are two conditions. Firstly, you need to dress up as a, a Swiss peasant. And secondly, we're going to call you the Swiss bell ringers. And uh, they said, well, you know, we like the idea, but there's no way we can do that. People are going to realize that we're uh, not Swiss straight away. <laughs> and uh, he said, carry on speaking in that accent. No one will ever know. <laughs> <laughs> he writes this in his autobiography. So he takes them to America, and they're an instant smash. They're playing to kind of 1,800-seat venues. They go on tour for uh, a couple of years. But as uh, British bands are later to find out, you know, touring takes, it to takes its toll. Two of them die. The rest get really sick. Uh, it's alcohol and drugs. <laughs> and they pack up. But they sell the act. So they sell the act on, firstly to the Peak family. And then the Peak family sold it to the Spaldings. Um, and that, that act carried on for 30 years. And the, the, the Peak family built themselves as the original Swiss bell ringers. And P.T. Barnum became upset by their success. Uh, and weirdly, Edgar Allan Poe saw them in uh, New York, and he wrote a piece about them in the Evening News, where he suggested that they were automatons, that they were robots. Um, and P.T. Barnum read this and thought, well, there's a good idea. They're really successful. Why don't I create an automaton version of them? Which is what he did. So he created the automaton bell ringers, which is essentially uh, a kind of very early female version of Kraftwerk. Um, <laughs> And then we see them, uh, uh, so this is the kind of classic bells on, uh, this is the circus bells, this is the Ringling Brothers, slightly weird, but they had, and I see this very much as cling clang, not ding dong, is the, the bells being taken out of the church, driven through a town, they're very, very, uh, and the Ringling Brothers are kind of very huge version of it. But it fits in with this, basically, which is it's novelty music. And I think if you could, I think there's basically a line you can trace from this right up into uh, through Kraftwerk into modern synthesizer music, if you think about Wendy Carlos and her Moog version of, was it Bach or Beethoven? So there's this whole weird industry developing around these, this novelty music. Cowbell's very much at the center of it. Um, and at the heart of it is, this, is Deegan. So Deegan's the main manufacturer of novelty musical items at the turn of the century. This is their factory in Chicago. And they made um, musical flower pots, musical paving stones, and lots of Swiss bells. Swiss bells are really big. And then they invent uh, the electric uniphone, which is essentially very early synthesizer made of bells. And then finally, there's an uniphone that was made with, with cowbells. So actually cowbells. So cowbells have gone on this weird journey from the Alps, a mountain music. They end up in the uniphone. And from there, they move into hillbilly music. So they move into hillbilly music in the 1920s. And then something interesting happens, which is basically... Buddy Holly. So I'm just going to play a couple of music clips at the end. So this is the first great instance of cowbells in popular music. It's the beginning of Heartbeat, 1954. So that's the first entry of, of Kling Klang into music, really. Uh, and I'm just going to quickly take you through the kind of journey up to the present day uh, and try and explain that really there's the, again, going back to the idea that maybe Kling Klang isn't all good, maybe Ding Dong isn't all bad. This is, for me, this is a couple of instances of, I think, good cowbell.
so you can hear Charlie Watts there, and it's really laid back. It's playing slightly behind the beat, and it's adding that indefinable kind of funk to the um, to the tune, which you then see repeated in uh, this is Parliament, and this is slightly harder to hear. But. Can you hear it? It's kind of riding over the top. It's riding in between spaces. It's absolutely not on the beat. For me, that's the I guess the ultimate example of, of, of Kling Klang in its later musical form. So away from uh, the cowbell in the field to the, the cowbell in the recording studio. But there is bad, uh, there's obviously bad um, cowbell. Uh, and this is my example of bad cowbell, which is these fellas here. You can hear it there. So that's basically, it's on the beat. It sounds absolutely awful. And it was that kind of, it was, it basically gave Cowbell a bad name. And it's the Cowbell that basically, um, don't know if anyone remembers this sketch from Saturday Night Live, which is. Blue Oyster Cult. I gotta have more Cowbell, baby. <laughs> Guess what? I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. So that, for me, is also that thing that happens, which is basically people undermining power using humor. And actually, there's a whole history of that with Ding Dong. The first use of the word Ding Dong is in the 15th century in a poem called about a pussy in a well and, uh, and a penis, basically. Um, and then Ding Dong, after that, takes on this kind of sexual form. Uh, uh, and I think that really is it's in a classic way that humanity subconsciously tries to undermine power using satire and using uh, vulgarity. So the next weird thing that happens with uh, Cowbell, and we're re almost reaching the end of our journey, is this. So it's the 808 um, drum machine invented by Roland. And a friend of mine, Luke, uh, went and uh, interviewed the guy at the top of Roland who, who ran the company when they put together the 808 when the 808 was invented, and he asked him, why did they add the cowbell? Why was the cowbell in there? And the guy said, I don't know. <laughs> it was actually, was, I don't know, we just didn't have much space. It's very, there's not much memory on the thing. But it, it ended up in this, so this is the weird, this is kind of weird, the weird moment in time where maybe Kling Klang and Ding Dong merge slightly. So this is Africa Bambata, and this is, slightly hard to hear, but it's the 808 cowbell, basically, which is, um, which is this. Sounds absolutely nothing like a cowbell. Uh, and then finally, the final way that I think that we, that we undermine power. So uh, we use bad behavior, we use vulgarity, and we also just appropriate it. So for me, this is the, this is the ultimate track that appropriates um, Ding Dong, which is Jeff Mills' The Bells which is a kind of Detroit classic piece of Detroit techno, which is just a couple of seconds of it here, which is, uh, fuck the cowboy, I'm just going to use the bells. I'm going to make it really mechanical, but it's still going to sound weird. Beautiful. So that's, um, that almost kind of brings us up to the present day, really. And when I kind of, when I started this journey, this was the bit of music that I actually meant to play, but I didn't. 
which is very... Uh, so this is Wolfgang's music. This is Kraftwerk. Obviously, Wolfgang was, was, was Wolfgang Fleur from Kraftwerk. So this is Kraftwerk in 1973, a year before I met him. And this is their song, Kling... Um, I think on their third, from their third LP, which is basically just the, a beautiful sound of cowbells, really, and other bells. So, uh, we're not mountain people, we're from Brighton, um, but we're hill people. And there used to be hill music. Uh, I don't know if anyone's a fan of, like I am, uh, of the great uh, Barclay Wills. Uh, wrote for the Sussex County Magazine in the 1920s, was totally obsessed by the sound of, uh, of sheep bells on the downs. In his books just obsess about that. They obsess about sheep bells, and they talk about the way that a good shepherd would tune the bells of his flock so that they would, so they would sound melodious. And he describes the way that bells really are... They're, 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 a, they're a musical uh, manifestation of the landscape. Because wherever you walk, the noise changes. If you're walking up a hill, it changes to the, when you're walking down. But sadly, those sheep bells aren't around anymore. Um, there are no farmers that have them. And I, and I felt very sad about that. And I thought, well, uh, I've got a friend who uh, works in the British Library. And she's a curator of sound there, Cheryl Tip. And I said, have you got anything that would sound a little bit like the sound that we would have heard on the downs, the sound of sheep bells? And she sent me this. It's got a slightly weird catalogue number at the start. Um, but bear with it, it's from... Number 201-119, Sheep, recorded by Alan Burbage. So I think, I think when you hear that, you're basically hearing craft work. <laughs> you're basically hearing the whole thing go full circle. That's actually, that's current sheep bells in Macedonia. So, um... You can't hear sheep bells anymore, but I urge you, go out on the downs, uh, embrace the spirit of Kling Klang. It is around all of us. Thank you very much. Matthew Clayton there with the talk on Kling Klang, which I believe, Dave, is our first post-truth talk. Very, very apposite for uh, I certainly think 2017. You, if, you get, if you look it up on Wikipedia, you may have difficulty finding some of it. That's for sure. That's that, although true. it isn't our first post-truth. That in itself is a bit of post-truth or alternative facts uh, you're posting there. because we You're did, absolutely correct. We though. did have one other. We have had one other. Uh, it was self-declaring, though. It was, well, it was, al it was an alternative fact. Wasn't alternative it, fact, the, the, exactly. The previous one. Anyway, so... Uh, this listening to Matthew's talk, particularly about this idea of, of of whether the cowbell rides the beat or whether the cowbell sits off the beat, mm. and I, I would, I, I would say that I I love the cowbell in Don't Fear the Reaper, but I totally get what he's on about in terms of the looseness of the other tracks that he mentioned. The power, as, as I think John Lennon referred to it as the power of the cow cowbell. Uh, you know, uh, so take it easy, come on, come on. No, no me, everyone's got something to hide but me and my monkey. Yeah, yeah. And that massive cowbell going off yeah, every yeah. beat. Yeah, yeah. It is wonderful. It and is. it and it makes me think about that that idea of the of of we can be a little uptight in in our response to music as a, as an audience, particularly kind of classical audience, you sit there with your hands on your knees and nobody moves and does anything or you know feels the groove. And uh, and my friend Marcus, who's a jazz musician grew up with a family of jazzers his dad's a dad's a, a jazz drummer Ma marcus talks of the embarrassment of going to gigs with his dad back in the back in the 80s 90s when his dad would insist on clapping on the offbeat during during a and he would be the only one there and people would look at him so what it's you bad doing? enough going with your dad well, <laughs> with your dad 
Or is that, he's is drawing that, attention to himself. I think that's pretty cool. But, but yes, right. would, yeah, and, and she's like, Dad, Dad, we just clap with everyone else. She's like, no, no, he's got a <laughs> swing. It's not swinging. I'm clapping on the offbeat. Oh, and Marcus said that now he's he's a dad and he's got he's got a couple of kids. He finds that he is going to concerts and he is the one who's leading the way. That is the um, definition of the cycle of abuse. There it is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, we've always done it. I'm uh, sorry. This it's wonderful, been. though. It's wonderful. So, it is. It is. It is. Uh, I, I would say that um, that I have a similar thing where um, I was in a choir as, as, a, as a child and as a youth. And so I learned all the bass lines to um, hymns. And if ever I'm in a situation where I'm singing a hymn now, um, I will always sing the bass line. Yeah, and you yeah. can see everyone sort of looking around going, What's someone's what's doing? He doing? He's yeah. not out of tune, but what's you know? Because you know, unless he's a choir, they don't sing the baseline. So yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. It's fun to do something like that a little bit different. Talking of a little bit different craft work. So it's, it's fair to say, yes, it's, it's fair to say that 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 Kling Klang was is the name of of Kraftwerk's studio. Yes, that's true. Um, but you were going to mention geeks. well, the studio is very interesting. I mean, you know, they they've made a whole life out of refusing to conform, haven't they? In, mm. a, in a very clever way. Um, uh, their studio, Kling Klang, is guarded by um, a flock of geese. So they have to get a man to clear the geese out of the way to get in and out, and then no one else can get in and out, you know, which is marvellous. And they have a phone in the studio. It's the only way to communicate with Kraftwerk is that they will let you know by fax or text or whatever, I don't know how they do it, but that, that they will be picking up their phone at a precise time, so 12, 15, and 30 seconds, because the phone has no ringer on it. So the, there's no sound. So if you get it wrong by, like, a second, then they will miss your call because they'll pick up the phone and say, "Hello, it's Kraftwerk," you know, which is brilliant. What <laughs> a fabulous bit of control! I love that story. Can I ask you? You have to. You don't have to answer truthfully. You can answer post truthfully if you want. <laughs> I've that, always been post truth. Did you hear that anecdote in the 1980s before mobile phones? Right. Which, did, did you? Who me? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think so. Is that a modern anecdote? That's a modern anecdote, yes. I, although I've, I've heard it in the last 10 years, certainly. Okay. And I think the whole point is that, they're, that it's all about control. Of, I, mean, I mean, Bill Murray famously is the same. You cannot, he doesn't have a mobile for any business contacts. He just has an answer machine uh, that he checks once a month. So any offers for films, he just uh, listens. And then his agent will get back to whoever's left the offer. But it, he won't talk to anyone. He just has a, a landline answer machine. You ring up and you pitch and... <laughs> If we did that, it would be suicidal, wouldn't it? Well, it would be a very quiet answer machine. <laughs> very quiet. Which, you know, I'm checking my phone every 10 minutes in the hope that some work will well, come Well, of course, in. I mean, I think that's that's the problem. I think that is a modern malaise. Yeah, yeah. You know, I do think the idea of actually controlling, being minimalist with technology, I mean, I think that... that well, is, Alan, Moore, Alan no. Moore is another one. So the story goes that Alan... I mean, I, Alan Moore doesn't have a mobile and, and doesn't use the internet or have an email address. So mm. if you want to get in touch with Alan Moore... He's got a mate who lives about five doors down. Alan Moore, the comic book writer, has got a yeah. mate down down the road, and you have to email him. So you have to track down his email, which isn't easy. <laughs> and you email this chap, and this chap, if he thinks Alan might be interested in this, he prints it off. Oh really? And he takes it <laughs> round for Alan email. to read. Excellent. And if Alan, and it will sit there for a little while, and then if Alan thinks, um, well, yeah, I've got to answer that, he'll he'll write a reply, Brilliant. and then the guy will come round again. Um, and maybe a week later, and and Anna will take it, and he will take it off, and and reply to the person who emailed. That's, That's lovely. I don't know if I've told this story before on this. On, uh, if if I have, then listener, please forgive me. But the the ultimate example of not available that way for me is Terence Stamp, when he got the part of General Zod. Have I told this before? No, no, no. 
he was had a bit of a break from acting and had maybe a bit of a breakdown. Or certainly, he decided to go a different way, and he ended up uh, in a Tibetan monastery um, and had been there for six months or so, absolutely uncontactable, uh, up in the hills, Tikriti, I think, somewhere in, in Tibet, very out of the way. And in the end, uh, Hollywood were desperate for him to do it. For some reason, the producers thought only only he could play General Zod. Um, so they had to send a, a kind of guy with a, a pack horse, a donkey, on, on his trail to go to a Tibetan monastery to make a Hollywood offer. That's that's the ultimate e- East meets West, isn't oh, it? You know, just like you know, a Sherpa turning up with a bit of paper. You know, do you want to play General General Zod in <laughs> Superman? You know, it's, it's <laughs> chanting. You know, and obviously it ten- it tempted him back. But uh, there is something to be said for being unavailable. There's a lot to be said for, for a it. minimalist approach to life, yeah. which which takes us neatly back to our dingamalism movement, yes. which we which is now alive. It's out in the ether. It's there for it people is. to embrace because it won't just be um, the dingamalists, you and I, Dave Ding, well, Dave we're, Dong. We're, essentially, we, we've created it now. We'll probably in a, in a week or two have to disown it because that's how these things work. We have to yeah. move on. There has to be thesis and antithesis. But we want the dingamalists to come up with the defining bit of work. Don't we, we? Well, we we have a competition here for 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 any any musical listeners, uh, and that is to create a dingamalist version of um, Karloff's Camino Brana entirely on doorbells. Nice. And I want to hear that. I want to hear that. Well, that's why we're that's why we're we're, we're putting that as competition. Absolutely. So, and the competition prize it's a bit of a good one uh, this week. We've we've got no furniture or vehicles left after <laughs> having given, <laughs> given them away. In previous competition, uh, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are we are now living in in Andrew's <laughs> in, uh, in a minimalist. Uh, yes, in a minimalist situation. way in, in the back of Andrew's car. Yeah. Prize. So it is a well. It's, we're looking at it now. It's a signed holographic, three dimensional, sculptural version of. John Cage's four minutes and thirty-three seconds of silence, and it's and it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary piece of work. Here we're, we're looking at it now. It's beautiful. It beautiful. is beautiful. It's it's um, it, you know glancing, you'd miss it. It's you, you absolutely would. You absolutely would. Um, and maybe to to wrap up the program, why don't we why don't we play let's play let's the, play the track it one more again. time. Absolutely. So you got go. you got iTunes open. Yeah, there. just gonna... there's a few versions on there. There let's are. Go and press play then. Okay, let me out. Ooh, that's, that's, hang on, which. I'm not sure. I'm this not doesn't sure. sound the same. I does don't it? like this one. Yeah, which one have you chosen? Oh god! Oh, oh, oh my god! This is the Sting cover this version. Is Sting, I'm sorry. I'm oh, so sorry. Oh, you've chosen the Sting cover I'm version. Turning it of off John now. I'm turn it, it off. Turn, turn it, it off. off. Oh god! It's on the Crankies one now. Oh, jeez. Oh, it's all right. Okay, there we go. It's uh, it's paused now. No, it's not paused. It's playing Sting still. <laughs> <laughs> The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Andrew Mailing and David Bramwell. Discover more about the show and upcoming live events at oddpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk and contact us through contact at oddpodcast.com. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the auditorium, please leave a review for us on iTunes. The Auditorium is a best-selling book full of fascinating stories about pioneers, outsider artists, adventurers, and counterculture heroes. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available through Amazon and all good bookshops. <laughs>